This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number six, recorded on October 11, 2018. Hello, folks. You're listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Delbert Ebi Abdallah, and I'm here with Chris Foner. How are you today? Doing pretty well. Two more days until fall break, so that's always good news. Yeah, I forgot we have that coming up. That should be nice. Just a giant stack of grading to do. Grading, grading exams, typing up new things, creating new documents. There is no break. I can just sleep no, until no. maybe 6.30 or 7. <laughs> but hey, at least it's not uh, grading on top of teaching, right? Exactly. And uh, here with us today is a uh, student here at Teal, Grant Milne. How are you, man? Good, how are you? Good. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, big animal guy, I guess. That's, okay. uh, that's my shtick. Uh, I'm just so trying to get a conservation bio student here yep. at Teal, okay. Senior. Trying to get into grad school. Yeah, senior. Played a couple years of football. Had some fun here. What position? Uh, uh, middle linebacker. Okay. And I'm uh, just trying to figure out I'll grad school to know right what now. That is. And, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, are you eligible for the draft? You know, uh, are you going to be no, no, you know, playing for the Steelers anytime soon? I am clinging to one year of eligibility after school, though, so I could probably yeah. use that somewhere. All right, cool, cool. <laughs> and what grad schools are you looking into? Uh, I'm looking at um, a few out west, uh, maybe Oregon, um, Madison, Wisconsin looks good. Uh, I talked to the guy from Cornell, don't know yet, but... And what are your interests in general? Like, what sort of programs are you looking for? Um, I really enjoy uh, freshwater ecology. That's okay. that's probably my biggest thing. I've grown up around water, loved it, and uh, I really like the animals that live there. So that's probably what I'd really like to study, although um, amphibians also very interesting. I did a study with Dr. Foner on uh, salamanders, and I really enjoyed it. So that could nice. be another direction. Cool, cool. Well, it's good to hear I'm doing something right then, right? Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> All right, so, but uh, you're here with us today, and uh, one of the things that you're interested in is uh, animals, like you said, right? Yes. And um, just bizarre animal reproduction. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of that out there. Too, yeah, I, I found a lot of weird ones. <laughs> okay. And you've done some research, and this was part of a uh, class that I'm teaching this semester, senior seminar, right? Yep. And um, just to give our guests sort of an idea, or our listeners an idea of, uh, what the structure of that is. Essentially, students look at uh, papers. It's a, a glorified journal club, effectively, right? So they look at papers, and then uh, around a particular topic, they summarize that. And uh, this is uh, Grant's uh, summary on bizarre animal reproduction. All right. So the floor is yours, man. So uh, tell us what you found, and uh, Fonard and I will just uh, pick on you every once in a while. Jump in as needed. <laughs> All right, so uh, I explored a lot of different animals. I tried to include a good collection of uh, different species, classes, families, and uh, found a pretty diverse array of reproductive methods. Um, so basically, reproduction serves as a uh, way of creating barriers between species. It's a lot, or it's largely based on behavior, but it's basically a way of keeping species from mixing and helping them remain distinct. So um, the first one, uh, these kind of progress in degrees of basically weirdness in the reproduction, like it'll get okay. more and more bizarre as we go. 
But uh, I started out with a relatively normal one, um, the duck-billed platypus. So I read a paper called Breeding Behavior of the Platypus in Captivity by Margaret Hawkins and Adam Battaglia. Um, and basically what they did is they studied some platypuses, which is the correct plural that they use <laughs> that in their paper. That is true, yeah. It is a very common uh, mistake. So a good job looking it up. Thanks. Um, they uh, studied them in an enclosure in a zoo. So this isn't 100% indicative of the way that they would behave in the wild, but it's okay. a pretty good idea. It's the best that they have to date because it's so difficult to study these things. Um, we'll get to why in a sec. But basically what makes duck-billed platypuses so weird is that they're uh, mammals, but they are... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. They are mammals. They belong to a group called monotremes. Mm -hmm. And they have fur and produce milk, which, again, are criteria of being a mammal. Right. But they per they lay eggs, which is really unusual. Instead of live birth. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Which is also a, another mammal characteristic. Right. Okay. Um, so they perform typical sexual reproduction. There is a mating ritual that almost always occurs in the water. It hasn't been documented documented on land, but they do believe that it could occur underground. But okay. again, really hard to document that. Um, so the females um, capable of having multiple uh, reproductive opportunities per year. What do we and, call that? Uh, that is called polyestrous. Okay. So um, they could have or there have been studies where they found um, offspring of the same uh, litter that have multiple fathers, which is kind of interesting. Scandalous. Yeah, Very I know. Yeah, platypuses get around. <laughs> um, they really look in the kind of offspring right and determine that the offspring and something like even twins, so twin platypuses, will have genetic differences, right? right. Okay. So, so by... Twin platypuses having genetic differences, with that study that you found, what was it, 1998 study by Akiyama, is it effectively uh, eggs that hatched at the same time that turned out to have different fathers? Is that is that why? I, I believe okay. that was their okay. finding, yeah. Um, so there's a pretty complex process of rearing the young. Um, the female will... Spend a week preparing a burrow, which is what makes the study of these difficult. Is It's really hard to get a camera into a nest to study the young as they're born and being reared. So without you know, disturbing the, uh, the nest. Yeah. The uh, David Attenborough series, uh, mm -hmm. they have a, a clip or an episode where they have a clip going into a platypus uh, underground right. nest. You should, you should, I don't know if you've come across I'll, it. I'll check it out yeah, for look sure. Yeah, look it up. I would All think right. with current day technology too, it'd be a little bit easier. Yeah, compared this is to a relative or two ago. Yeah. And, and that is the only one I know of that has been able to do that. Mm -hmm. I right. don't know if others have been able to do that. So they'll prepare a nest with wet vegetation. They do prefer this to dry. Um, scientists actually tested this in another study where they laid out um, mats of dried material that would typically be found on river and lake bottoms, and the platypuses completely ignored it. They prefer wet vegetation for constructing the nest. And uh, once they've set up this underground nest uh, burrow, then they'll lay their eggs, and uh, the eggs will typically be incubated for a period of 12 days. 
After this, the juveniles are then fed milk from the mother, as you would see in most mammals. And after roughly 130 days, the juveniles will begin to emerge and uh, forage. And from this point onward, the mother will typically abandon the burrow and uh, the juveniles are on their own. What is something from like a physiological basis that could control um, kind of egg-laying behavior? So kind of a very special type of chemical messenger, right? That is going to control if the female successfully lays eggs or if the female you know, doesn't lay their eggs. Okay, so um, the female uh, will often build a nest um, even if she's unable to lay eggs. Mm -hmm. So this is influenced by a hormone within the female that basically tells her that um, during her um, period where she's able to reproduce, she should begin constructing a nest so that it is prepared in the event that eggs are available. Um, if she's unable to find a mate or if uh, she, for whatever reason, is unable to produce eggs in that period, she'll still build the nest and then just abandon it um, upon not giving or not laying any eggs. And one last tough question. Mm -hmm. uh, what could control kind of the release of those hormones? Can you think of either from a human perspective or from free living animals in the wild? What do you think could control how these different hormones, and I'm guessing here maybe even reproductive hormones, are going to rise and fall over the season? Um, it may possibly be like uh, time frame based. Whereas they're on a cycle, like seasonally or um, monthly, where they're uh, getting these like spikes and falls of hormones. Mm -hmm. um, another thing could possibly be pheromone interactions. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much that would influence uh, in platypuses, but um, perhaps like interactions with um, members of the other sex, or just as an example, might possibly um, cause the female to produce these hormones that are triggering an uh, innate response to create a nest. Good, good. All right, so moving on from platypuses, uh, we can dive into The Sex Lives of Fish by Jonathan Balcombe. Sounds like an ABC sitcom, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, so, yeah, a little Seinfeld intro plays and some fish rolling. How does it go? Uh, <laughs> no, I shouldn't do that ever again. Good. So, well, uh, I mean, if you if you do it correctly, you may have to pay royalties. Would, so, oh, so yeah, that's right. Let's not do that. Maybe it's a good thing that I messed it up then. <laughs> So uh, to date, there's um, 32 different fish breeding systems. Um, and and be, be, this is a review you found, right? Yes. So it's not going to go too in-depth, but it's going to cover a broad spectrum of some fish species that basically just have really interesting forms of reproduction. Okay. So uh, most fish practice gonochronism. Um, this basically means that a male or female will remain a male or female for the course of its life. Uh, after sexual determination, although there are some that uh, are capable of going back and forth, as we'll talk about. So the, the gonochorism, that's similar to humans then? Yes. Okay. Um, so in clownfish, we actually see this uh, gonochronism is not present. Uh, and clownfish, that's your typical Nemo? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, okay. uh, that's your Nemo. So uh, in... They live in a um, hierarchical structure where basically the largest two fish in a colony, well, I don't know if you can technically call it a colony, but they, they refer school, to it as school. a hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. school. So 
uh, there will be a large male and a large female, and these will be uh, the breeding pair, with the female typically being slightly larger than the male. Um, the behavioral dominance of these two large uh, breeding pair, well, one large breeding pair, will keep the other clownfish that are entirely male from developing uh, female sex organs. Hmm. So the males that are smaller will remain smaller. They're physiologically incapable of developing further and growing larger. And uh, this is almost entirely due to just sheer intimidation from the larger pair. Um, <laughs> I find that just, yeah. just fascinating. Yeah. So, just this hierarchical kind of dominance that's going to affect whether the transition from male to female or vice versa is going to occur. That's fascinating. Right. So has anyone been able to pinpoint what's the molecular mechanism or hormonal mechanism for this behavioral dominance? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I'd need to look into that further. But from the way that this study or this review described, it basically says that they're physio-psychologically impaired and <laughs> unable to develop further. <laughs> That's funny. So, uh, so what happens if one of those uh, b members of the breeding pair dies? So um, basically when one of those gets knocked off the top of the pile, another one will step up to take its place. So one of the smaller males will then, well, the largest of the smaller males will then be able to develop further as it seems like this kind of intimidation is lifted almost. Okay. And the if the female is the one that is killed, the larger male in the breeding pair will then develop female sex organs and the second largest male will rise to take the place of the previous breeding male and it basically keeps the structure intact. So what, I mean, what prevents any one of these smaller males, let's say two of them, of just breaking off, starting their own colony and becoming the breeding pair? Um, again, I would think some form of intimidation would play a role. Right. It's mm -hmm. basically, you know, you don't want to run away from home. Right, right. But, okay. uh, you know, it's a big world out there. You're just a little fish. I was watching a clownfish in the ocean. It's a yeah. huge world out right. there. Right, right. <laughs> so they probably adhere to their um, school, keep safety in numbers. But okay. I would assume that in the com if you were to isolate one of these uh, fish, I'm not entirely sure how they would react. So say you were to... Uh, physically remove it from its school and put it in an aquarium or right something. and grow it on its own I'm not sure entirely sure how it would react I would like to kind of see what other factors right like what specifically is it you know intimidation stress is it a stress hormone change like what exactly is causing right. this switching from um, what is it from male to female right this is actually fun aside I assume everybody in here has seen the original Jurassic Park right and remember when they bred and kind of filled in the gaps of the DNA in this, of course, fictional movie, but they used, what, West African frogs to right. plug in gaps in the genome? Right. That, that. And, they were supposed not to breed. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the whole thing was they were not going to breed unless they were fed a specific, what, amino acid? Mm -hmm. And what one of my favorite actors, Sam Neill, Dr. Alan Grant in the movie, he found out that these kind of animals were breeding in the wild, and he realized, wow, these kind of, I believe, West African frogs, he called them. And actually, there's a frog called the common reed frog that's found in the Congo, Kenya, uh, Uganda. 
that is able to spontaneously change sex from female to male, so the opposite of what you just described, okay. Grant. And it's a chemical trigger inside of the body due to a lack of males in the population for breeding purposes that actually causes disintegration of the female organs and then the development of male sexual organs. So not 100% accurate as was described in my favorite movie, Jurassic Park, but there is a basis for that in that not only the organism you talked about, the clownfish, but also certain frogs are able to change their gender, or sorry, their change their sex. So uh, we'll get into a little bit of sex determination in a second here after the, uh, the second part of this review, but um, the, or in the other example mentioned in this review, um, we're going to get into reproductive symbioses. So this is um, probably my favorite example. It's almost a perfect system that just came together really well between these two species. So the Rhodius amorous, or um, as they're commonly known, bitterlings, are found in European streams along with mussels of a unio genus. Um, this is really cool because the female bitterlings, which are tiny fish again, will lay their eggs in a siphon of a mussel from the unio genus. Um, the eggs will kind of be inhaled as this is a small uh, organ used to propel water through the, um, through the mussel to collect food as their filter feeders. Um, so these eggs will actually lodge themselves in the siphon, not plugging it, just adhering to the walls. And then a male will come along and release sperm into the siphon entrance, which will again be inhaled by the muscle, and this will fertilize the eggs lining the walls. Uh, these eggs will then develop and hatch into fry within the muscle, but they don't just swim out right away. They actually use the muscle kind of as a little home, and they'll live in the muscle siphon for a short period. Um, the muscle itself is adapted to not actually let these fry escape because it will then use them for its own purpose. Uh -huh. So the muscle is able to attach its own eggs to the fry that are located in the siphon before expelling them. So basically these little fish are acting as a convenient delivery mechanism for the eggs to the external environment as muscles aren't very mobile. Very nice transport mechanism there. Yeah, like it's, that. it's a pretty sweet process they got going on. So then these little fish will swim off, the eggs will detach after a short period, and the fish are on their way completely unharmed, and the eggs will drop off and are able to develop into their own muscles uh, spread out in a... Well, usually they'll be relatively uh, close together as uh -huh. these fry aren't swimming like great adjacent. distances. Yeah. yeah. But it, it is a nice way of spreading the eggs rather than just, you know, trying to spit them out, essentially. Well, it saves even just simple energy, right? Just the right. conservation of that energy can then be devoted to other things if they have something else, another organism, transporting the eggs. Right. So I just thought that was a really neat little um, convenient. Uh, one's getting sheltered, the other's getting dispersed. is a really, like, nice mechanism where the two come together really well. So, um... Getting into the next um, animal, I guess. So uh, uh, before we do that, should we uh, do a quick uh, break for the radio station and then... Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think that's a nice We're breaking point. We're at about point. 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. okay. 
when we good. come back, what are we going to be talking about, Grant? Uh, we'll talk, be talking a little bit about a parthenogenetic crayfish and a uh, species of worm that's, well, nematode. That's, uh, oh, they're worms. Nematodes are worms. Yeah, there you go. Capable of some pretty interesting sex determination. Uh, I think one of my favorite parasites to talk about in parasitology, which, uh, uh, cheap plug here, if you want to, uh, I, I can let you know when we're doing that parasite, probably within the next week or so, you can come in on that lecture. All right, sounds good. All right, let's take a quick break for our radio audience, and we'll uh, be back after the music interlude. And for our podcast audience, we're just going to power through. All right. All right. And okay, we are back with uh, Dr. Fawner and Grant Mill, a conservation biology student here at Teal, telling us about some interesting um, reproductive behavior. All right. So uh, the information for this little portion was uh, found in a paper, How to Become a Parasite Without Sex Chromosomes, a, hip a Hypothesis for the Evolution of Strongyloides and Related Nematodes. Um, this is by Adrian Streit. So basically, uh, strongyloides are a small species of nematode that has a unique uh, sex determination system. Um, they use an XOXX sex determination as opposed to an XXXY sex determination system. Um, in the typical human sex determination, um, if a Y is present, the organism or the offspring will develop into a male. That Y uh, triggers the male development. But in strongyloides, actually the absence of an X chromosome triggers the development into a male. Uh, the XX will develop into a female, and this is uh, typically the most common um, strongyloides. Uh, so they typically live in the small intestine of vertebrates, um, and they usually follow genetic sex determination, where for the most part, all the offspring produced will be XX as these uh, nematodes are capable of parthenogenesis. So parthenogenesis basically means that the eggs of the organism will are capable of developing into another organism without the need to be fertilized by a male. Um, and how do they do that for a cheap plug for my Bio 145 students with an exam coming up? What's the specific cell division? that allows for parthenogenesis to occur? That's mitosis, correct. Very good. All good right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Um, so in almost all cases, the uh, members of this strongyloides genus will be uh, female. However, in the event that one of the chromosome, the X chromosomes is knocked out, they will develop into a male. So. This is considered an environmental sex determination because uh, typically the X chromosome won't be knocked out without an external force, such as uh, uh, immune response from a host organism. So in response to um, an immune response from the host organism, a higher percentage of these nematodes will be developing as male. The males are then capable of sexual reproduction with the females, which, are prov which provides a convenient little mechanism to pr give some variation to the population. Which is always good, right? You of want course. more variation within a certain population of organisms in case 
you know, something bad happens and you don't want genetically identical species to all be wiped out at the same time. Right. So uh, just just so uh, we're not, uh, just to be clear with information, right, or not giving any confusing information, the nematode parasite, Strongyloides, has uh, effectively uh, two life cycles, one or two hosts for life cycles, one inside the vertebrate host. Right. And one as a free-living, non-parasitic, environmental, sort of in the environment life cycle. Right. This sort of special, weird, bizarre sexual determination happens in the vertebrate host. In the life cycle that's sort of in the soil, there can be both males and females there. Right. And uh, when it infects a human host, usually... Uh, it, it's one sex that can sort of switch, right? Right. But in the free-living form, it's uh, uh, free-living adults and females that, you know, will live in the soil together. Right. So in the host, if um, male-female sexual reproduction occurs, all of the larvae will develop with a dependence on the host, basically until they're expelled. Then some are capable of uh, heterogonic development, meaning... Uh, independent of the host. But for the most part, um, larvae revolt resulting from sexual reproduction will develop uh, homogonically. And these are interesting parasitic species, right? So for humans, uh, it's not necessarily too uh, uncommon, right? The sort of like a tropical, subtropical area parasitic disease. And the one that infects people is uh, Strongyloides stercoralis. And um, there's other species that infect other uh, vertebrate hosts like chimpanzees and baboons. Those are known to be sort of like reservoir hosts, uh, especially like uh, Strongyloides uh, fulliborni, I think it's called. Uh, but yeah, they're a uh, common name for this. People might know it as a threadworm in terms of like parasitic infections of people. Okay. Um, so then moving on to our uh, next weird reproductive mechanism. It's actually a species of crayfish, and these are capable of parthenogenesis as well. Now, is this the one you're doing your senior research project with? Yep, this is what I'm doing my research on. And uh, I can definitely attest to the fecundity of these organisms. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah, Are they producing a lot? Yeah, so really? I, yeah, I bought two of them online, which is the concern here, as you can buy them as aquarium pets and they reproduce rapidly, which uh, makes them a concern for release into native waterways as they okay. can easily adapt and uh, potentially become an invasive species, which is the focus of my research. So where where are yours now? You started with two? I started with two. One ate the other one right off the bat. Oh, so I was okay. really worried. I was like, I'm going to be out of these things in no time. Talk about behavioral dominance. Yeah, yeah intimidation. That's, and, uh, that's nice. Yeah, one of them was gone, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> going to have to order some more of these guys or maybe change my ideas up. And uh, actually, the one in its first batch produced almost 50 offspring. I think it was like 48 <laughs> baby crayfish. And I was like, oh, now i got to deal with these. So I raised those, and... Uh, are they eating I, each other? Still? Uh, no, actually, they are pretty friendly with each other. I got them all in a communal tank, and I haven't had maybe five or six casualties. And so I wonder if the pair you actually received at the beginning was not sort of raced together. Right, and maybe not. That's uh, 
one of the characteristics of these crayfish that makes them so um, favored as pets is they are typically not too aggressive in terms of crayfish, as in like they won't go after your other aquarium pets so much. And um, they will actually get along with each other better than most crayfish will. They're not quite as territorial, okay. uh, which is, and again, another concern as an invasive species because, you know, they're not going to be killing each other off as much potentially, um, which is another worry. But, yeah, actually, I my original crayfish that's back home just had another batch of eggs two days ago. So I got to deal so with those. So your poor parents are uh, yeah. in, involved in this, in this as well. Yeah, I'm my dad's really happy about that. Yeah. Yeah, my dad's classroom is swamped right now. He's got a, my turtle well, you in said there. He's, he's what? As, he's a science teacher. If he's I he's a history teacher. History teacher. Right. Okay, but okay. his room is just packed with all my aquarium pets I left behind when I moved to college. <laughs> so he's loving that. Just when they thought they got rid of you, you leave your crayfish <laughs> yeah. behind. That's fantastic. Uh, so. So tell us what makes these special. Um, basically, the fact that they can perform parthenogenesis is um, entirely new to the decapods. There's okay. no other recorded decapod capable of parthenogenesis, although there are other crustaceans that have this unique trait. Um, parthenogenesis is unique as only 0.01% of all animal species are capable of it. Um, and one thing that's and, and, and just to clarify for our listeners, just define parthenogenesis for us. Uh, the ability of an egg in the species to develop without fertilization by another member of the Perfect. species. Yeah. So. So no need for the male. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and the these, uh, the members of this species are obviously entirely female, right. and they also are entirely genetically identical. Okay. So every single crayfish within this species will have the same exact uh, genotype. And again, as any student from Foundations of Biology would know, with these eggs being, or these eggs undergoing mitosis and the offspring and all of the members here being genetically identical, what type of cell division is not present in these organisms? Oh, there's no meiosis occurring. Good. And actually... So no um, production of gametes. Exactly. No, so the ova is produced simply by mitosis. Yes. And uh, another interesting feature is that they actually have three sets of chromosomes as opposed to the typical crayfish's two sets. So this is what they actually attribute to being the mutation that gives these crayfish their parthenogenetic ability. Um, They were actually discovered in the German aquarium trade in the mid-1990s. I think a couple sources have said 1995, although it's not a very definitive number. But so do do we think then this has been uh, a random mutation that occurred in aquaria and then that's how they uh, arose? Right, which is incredibly rare. That almost never happens. Uh, we very rarely see um, mutations of this extreme or of these extremes uh, occurring in you human have captivity. To go all the way to parthenogenesis right. with just this mutation. Yeah, that's that's S- crazy. Some um, scientists propose that it could have been. A mixing of two different species where they actually uh, crossbred like and hybridized into this species but um, one study that focused on or particularly on the um, the karyotype of these individuals called the parthenogenetic marmocrebs is a triploid organism by Martin and others uh, they basically and karyotype is it's uh, 
collection, or not collection, but an, an analysis of the chromosomes present in As the an individual. crayfish, right? right? Perfect. So uh, these crayfish um, actually have, let's see the exact number here, 184 chromosomes found in the mitotic uh, cells from the sexually re reproducing crayfish, whereas uh, Procambrus phallus has exactly 92 more than this, which would mean that they basically picked up an extra set of chromosomes as uh, a haploid member of the Procambrus phallic species would typically have 92. And just to put this in perspective, I mean, we're talking, uh, I mean, it picked up 92, but the other one is 184. Right. So, uh, how many do humans have? Uh, I believe 26, 23. 23. Oh, 23. And then okay. pairs, right? So right. 46 total, right? right? So um, it's interesting for our listeners just to put that uh, a little bit in perspective, right? We consider ourselves to be a complex organism, right? Right. A highly evolved organism. And um, yet here we are with 43 chromosomes and a crayfish has 184, right? Right. 46. Right. So, well, well, 46. 46 yeah, you yeah. picked that. 46, no, okay. 23, 46. We don't want anybody yeah. sending in corrections. God, yeah, they'll put that on my exam yeah, now, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. well, you said in the podcast. <laughs> no, no yeah. we need to cover ourselves here. So, 46. Yeah. 46, and thank you. This is and kind a diploid. Of, so, yeah. Exactly. So, this is kind of getting to the idea of something that, again, covered in some bio classes is that, you know, gene amounts of DNA, right. gene expression, gene regulation, and RNA splicing, things like that. That's what ultimately leads to, you know, complexity. Right. You can have an right. enormous Absolutely. amount of chromosomes and DNA or very little. Right. That's not necessarily correlated with increasing yeah. complexity. Yeah. And we talk about that in class, right? Low right. gene copy numbers, high gene copy numbers, and things like that, where uh, you may just have a ton more chromosomes and be, in the order of things, just uh, many pegs lower on that order, right? right? And that, to me, is fascinating. It's worth noting that um, crayfish are characteristic of often having really high chromosome numbers. Okay. And uh, there's actually been documented triploidy in other crustacean species where triploidy has led to parthenogenesis. Right. Although, again, not particularly in decapods. Another thing to keep in mind, too, as well, is um, sizes of those chromosomes, right? They could they right. be yeah, tiny. And Com comparatively, I mean, they're all microscopic. So, uh, as I mentioned before, marmocrebs are particularly uh, a threat as an invasive species as they do have such high fecundity and 100% um, uh, egg viability, none are going to go unfertilized, and there's no wasted energy on um, males are finding mates as they don't require mates, and um, males aren't needed to reproduce offspring, and which means every single member of the population is capable of producing offspring. So if you have... That's you know, why you have a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have 50 crayfish born, you're not going to have 25 of them that are incapable of producing eggs. All of those right. are then capable right. of producing eggs. And each batch typically be contains between 30 and 400 eggs as they reach uh, maturity. Yeah, yeah. For sexually reproducing uh, organisms, uh, that's called the cost of the male. Right. Right. But half of your population is pretty much in terms of ability to reproduce useless right they yeah, just right. produce gametes males or are cheap. sperm yeah and yeah i was always told whenever right. i was an undergrad you know males are cheap in any you know ecology class 
you know, even in a certain genetics course, is that it is much more energetically expensive and much harder to be a female oh, in course. terms of the reproductive cost yeah. compared to male organisms. Absolutely. All you have to do is produce a gamete. And it's actually kind of a lazy lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there is one upside to this species spontaneously arising, however. Um, they do make a pretty nice model organism for epigenetic study which okay. is what's currently being explored with these crayfish at the moment. And epigenetic, just to clarify in the simplest terms of the definition, are changes to the genome after. Sort of not changes to the base of the genome, not changes to the basic sort of sequences of the gene, right. just changes to the genome after mm -hmm. sort of replication. You or can think about it as being like on top of or in addition to right. well, that's what traditional is, right. exactly, the epigenome. Epi on top of, epi right. on top yep. of yeah. Exactly. So, uh, Grant, we've got maybe about uh, five, ten minutes here. So, uh, what else do you have for us? All right. You left, the, you left the good stuff for last, I take it? Yeah, this, this one's uh, pretty intense. Actually, there's two that kind of go along with each other. So, there's a uh, species of sea slug known as Alderia modesta, and I read about this in a study by uh, Lisa Angeloni, called Sexual Selection in a Simultaneous Hermaphrodite with Hypodermic Insemination, Body Size Allocation to Sexual Roles in Paternity. So uh, these are pretty interesting. Uh, they're, again, little sea slugs, and they perform hypodermic insemination, which basically means that they're, they have both male and female organs in every member of the species, and they utilize a sharp penis located on the head to penetrate the skin, essentially, of the other members of the species and inject their semen, which then swims its way to the copulatory, not copulatory organs, but the reproductive organs. Hence the hypodermic below the right. skin. Ouch. So, yeah, it's yeah, uh, painful. painful. Imagine it's not a lot of fun, and oftentimes it can last between 45 minutes and an hour. Um, huh. Typically with smaller members injecting larger members for longer, and uh, they hypothesize in this experiment that um, the smaller inject the larger for longer because the longer have uh, more reproductive potential in terms of producing eggs. Uh, you'd expect the larger hermaphrodite to have more eggs available, whereas the larger one injecting the smaller one for longer wouldn't gain as much as they're probably... Uh, maxed out on their reproductive capacity already. And in some species, uh, that's often, this sort of method of reproduction is often referred to as traumatic insemination. Right, which brings us to our next species, or collection of animals, which are bedbugs, which uh, use traumatic insemination as well. These guys have uh, evolved a little bit more of an advanced system of this. So in the uh, most simplistic of the species, Primacymex cavernus, the sperm's injected directly into the hemocyl, which is basically the inner body cavity mm -hmm. of the insect. And uh, the sperm will then swim through the hemocyl to the reproductive organs. However, in uh, Cymex, er, Cymex lectularis and Cymex hemipteris, um, hemipteris. hemipteris, they have a uh, small basically collection organ called the spermilage where the um, it's basically targeted by the males where this is where they'll 
uh, inseminate the female, although... Hypodermically through this traumatic yeah. insemination. Right. And again, um, once it's in the spermilage, it actually just diffuses in the hemoseal and swims its way to the reproductive organs again. But in what is considered the most advanced um, form, in strictocymax brevispinosis, uh, there's a conductor cord that connects the spermilage directly to the female reproductive organs, and this kind of hand delivers the sperm to the egg, which uh, shows that there's basically an evolution within the species of uh, reproductive mechanism, which is what I thought would be pretty cool to end with because it shows that uh, reproduction is constantly moving forward, constantly uh, becoming more complex and more effective so that species are able to remain distinct and also basically get better at reproducing. Right. Especially sexual reproduction. Right. right. You see that term a lot. You mentioned the hemocele, right? That kind of uh, suffix, C-O-E-L. Right. Uh, have you ever taken any human development or any type of developmental biology course? I have course? not. So you see that a lot in the early stages of development, the blastocele, right? Right. So with the blastocele and kind of the hemocele here, you're going to have an internal cavity or internal structure that's going to be filled with fluid. And that's something that I just want to make clear here. Whenever the sperm is injected, right, it diffuses through the wall and then swims through the hemocele. In order to swim, right, the sperm has to be in that kind of aqueous environment. Right. Okay? So it's going to get in there, it's going to swim through, and eventually get to the seminal conceptacles. Right. So speaking of animals and animal handling and uh, keeping animals in labs, both uh, Dr. Fawner and I have an IACUC committee meeting in about 10 minutes. So we got to wrap this up and go to the IACUC committee meeting. And um, so, so give us a conclusion. These are, these are really interesting uh, behaviors or bizarre methods of animal reproduction. If you can sort of, I don't know, you know take a minute, conclude maybe, and then uh, we'll go from there. All right. Um, so like I said, uh, reproduction is like an ongoing process. It's constantly being adapted and improved. And uh, as species progress, so do their reproductive forms in order to enable them to be more effective at reproduction, increase the rate of success, which is ultimately the goal here, to produce uh, offspring with the maximum amount being able to, well, we have R-selected and K-selected uh, reproduction, which is where it gets complicated, but basically, which are able to reproduce the most effectively that's going to allow the proliferation of the species. Um, okay. And I just thought that these are some really interesting examples to just show exactly how complex and specialized uh, these reproductive forms can be. Um, I don't think that if you were to dream up a reproductive mechanism, you would imagine stabbing your partner and <laughs> pushing it right into their body. So, again, they, they get pretty wild, and uh, I just thought it was really cool and that people yeah, the, would like to learn about. Some the traumatic insemination is, is really interesting, and a lot of... Uh, I find a lot of people don't know about it, right? Uh, right. Particularly students that uh, take some of these courses. And we actually talk about the bed bugs as a parasite. It is a parasite, right? We talk about it in parasitology. It's an ectoparasite. And uh, every time we get to that part, uh, students uh, start waking up. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I'd wake up too if it was something like, you know, stabbing copulatory mechanism of reproduction. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay, and uh, anything else uh, you guys want to say before we wrap it up? Uh, no, I don't no, think so. I think, so. I think uh, Grant did a pretty good job at concisely and efficiently explaining all of these really cool and very bizarre, if I can say so myself, uh, methods of reproduction. So, good Thank job, you. buddy. Absolutely, Thanks. yeah. Thanks for uh, being a guest on the show. All right, folks, that's our show for today. Uh, you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Uh, just search for the Biobusters. Please subscribe so we know you're interested and keep producing those episodes. Um, you can use any podcast uh, catcher or podcast device to download our episodes. Uh, if you're on a Google phone, you can use the Podbean app. You can find us on the Podbean app as well. Just Google the Biobusters. Uh, you can listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. I'm Delbert Abi Abdallah, and you can find me at Twitter at Dr. Delbert, and you can find Chris Foner at Foner916. Even though he hasn't tweeted anything recently, I keep telling him to get that up and running. We keep announcing it. I bet you people are going to this thing, and you've got nothing on me. Well, when I find time to draft up and send out my first uh, tweet to the Twitter sphere, <laughs> then I will be sure Just to Just tweet do so. the links to the episodes, man. Tweeting. Okay, we'll have an episode on the dangers and scientific validity of a tweet, but I get why we do it. Twitter can be a useful tool. Yes, I it promise can. Yes, I will can. be doing it in the future. And uh, are you on Twitter if anybody wants to follow you? Uh, no, I'm no, not. That'll be a hard no on that one as yeah. well. All right, well, thank you all for listening, and thanks to Baha Namani for the music. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. Bye.